Our main diet as a church is to work through books of Scripture. And I think there's very good reasons for that practice. One of those reasons is that preaching through books teaches the church how to read and how to interpret the Bible in its context. Another reason is that preaching through books compels us to consider difficult texts that we would otherwise avoid. And texts, which I've learned, often prove as rewarding as they are challenging. When you work through a book, you cannot avoid those passages. It pushes us. It helps us to see things we might never otherwise consider. The third reason is that preaching through books steers us to feed on the sustained arguments that unfold as an author intended under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. So for these reasons, and there are others, we search the Scriptures verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week by week. But I think there is also wisdom in supplementing our primary focus on the books of Scripture with the periodic investigation of a biblical theological theme. Tracking a doctrinal theme through the Scriptures helps us expose a vein of theological thought that is threaded through and ties together the various eras of redemptive history. We have been, through some weeks now, embedded in the book of Numbers and some of the book of Deuteronomy over these last months. But lifting up out of that book, that's one era of salvation history. As we lift up out of a single book and chase or track a theme through Scripture, we have a different way of seeing God's truth as it's tied together. So, for instance, in the series on the city, the city of God, the city of man that we were through sometime in the past. So in this vein today, as has been mentioned, I want to begin a series upon the Word of God. The Word of God. Now such a series um, for a church steeped in Scripture such as we are might strike us as somewhat odd. Little prospect for a church that is so given to biblical texts. See, uh, the point, uh, I mean, we might, might look at it like taking a bucket and taking a bucket out of the lake and staring at the water. Uh, that's to talk about the Word of God. The Word of God's everything. It's what we're always studying and considering. So maybe it's like taking that bucket out of the lake and staring at the water. The point is to swim in the lake. The point is to fish, to paddle, to ski, to jet across it, not stare at a bucket full of water from the lake. Don't think of this series in those terms. We're just going to isolate to the topic of the Bible and see what the Bible says about itself. We will do that to some degree. But think of it more along the lines of what we considered recently in Numbers 32, where Moses exhorts Israel to know that God's Word is, he says, no empty word for you but your very life. And by this Word you shall live. It is your very life. By it, you will live. So I encourage us to approach this series 
with the conviction that God's Word is His life-giving, life-transforming, authoritative truth upon which our spiritual lives flourish or, in its absence, languish. To recognize, then, the significance of it. Drawing from the words of John Frame, he says this, When we encounter the Word of God, we encounter God. So it's not the, the, the bucket out of the lake, but the lake itself. The bottomless ocean of who God is. When we encounter God, we encounter His Word. God's Word and His personal presence are inseparable. His Word indeed is His personal presence. Whenever God's Word is spoken, read, or heard, God Himself is there. I think He's right, and I think it's with that thinking that we should approach this series. It's my heartfelt prayer that this series will serve to more firmly root Eden Baptist Church in this solid foundation, this rock of God's Word and how we understand it. It's my prayerful hope that this series will serve to more fully shape our relationship with God through a heightened knowledge of the nature of His Word and a deeper conviction of its authority, its power, and its beauty. I labor in this as God knows my heart for my love for you, my love for Him, and bringing them together as a church to consider what this may mean for us in the future how this will hold us against the winds of opposition, and how this is our life, our very life. We begin such a series, then, always as we do, at the beginning. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 1. We find here, first of all, that God's Word creates life and causes it to flourish. So we're very familiar with these first chapters of Genesis. In fact, in every such biblical theological theme that we chase in series from time to time, we virtually always start with the book of Genesis. It is, in a sense, the seed from which the entire Bible comes to flower. And so we must start here at the beginnings, at the genesis, at the origin of God's revelation. But we're going to look at this in these three chapters from the angle of God's Word. And specifically emphasizing that, I'm going to do the best that I can to stay off of a lot of things that are here that are very interesting to us, very essential to our faith, but we're going to narrow in on what is said about God's Word. In verses 1 and 2, we read that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 1, I don't know how a single sentence could say more or carry more implications than this opening statement of Scripture. There are others like it, but it is profound. All people spend the rest of their lives fighting the truth of this verse or accepting its light and rejoicing in it. Everyone. All people spend their lives responding as David responds to this truth. And he, in a 
wonderful way, a rejoicing way. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. In the beginning. Unlike other world religions, Christianity is rooted in historical event. Our faith is not merely a set of principles by which to live. It is that. But it is more than that. It is grounded in time and space and event. Our faith is the story of God rescuing His people in time and space for His glory. And with respect to God's Word, and there is a massive significance to this next sentence that I'm not going to unfold here, but by God's grace over the weeks to come, with this phrase, in the beginning, we are oriented to hear all of God's words in their specific historical redemptive context. When God speaks, He speaks into a time, into a context, into a story. And never can we separate those two. More on that later, perhaps. But verse 1, God creates the elements of the universe. Verse 2, I think, serves as a parenthetical statement which builds anticipation of God's creative acts to follow. You might imagine a highly anticipated play. And you have, you have wanted to see this play for a long time and you come to the theater and the lights go dark and the crowd grows silent. What is that? It is to build the anticipation. And everyone is sitting on the edge of their seats in the darkness waiting until the curtain parts and the lights illumine the stage. That waiting in the darkness in a sense is verse 2. Like a bird hovering over her nest, the Spirit of God hovers over the foreboding darkness. All is chaotic shapelessness. Matter is not eternal. It has been created by God. But at this point, it's chaotic shapelessness. The elements of the universe blindly waiting. But when the curtain opens, when it opens on God's first act of creation, we do not first see, we first hear. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God speaks into the darkness. Starting to give now form and spacing and beauty to the elements that He created, He speaks and creation is flooded with light. And with each successive creative day, God continues to speak His powerful Word. We make just three observations about this first chapter. As it unfolds, we see first of all that God speaks the universe into existence. We cannot miss this. Notice verse 3, And God said... Verse 6, and God said. Verse 9, verse 11, verse 14. 
And God said, down to verse 20. And God said, verse 24, verse 26. This is why David says what he says. By the breath of the Lord, the world is formed. God speaks throughout this creative account. Calling the world into existence. Secondly, God names what He creates. Notice verse 5. He called the light day. And the darkness He called night. Again, He is speaking as He names what He has created. Verse 8, He called the expanse heaven. Verses 9 and 10, He called the dry land earth and the waters He called seas. As days four through six unfold, the emphasis shifts from calling things out to filling the spaces that are created in days one through three. But God's naming work, I think, is assumed all the way through. So, one, He speaks the universe into existence. Two, He names what He creates. And then as we think of God's Word, thirdly, He pronounces His blessing. We find this in verse 22. God creates the creatures of the sea and bless them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Let birds multiply on the earth. God bless them saying and commissions them in a sense to flourish under His Word. Then in verse 28 of chapter 1, verse 28, And God blessed them, this is Adam and Eve, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I give you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, that has my breath of life, that I have created, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God speaks the universe into existence. He names what He creates and He pronounces a blessing particularly here on man in verse 28 and following. More on that in a moment, but first let me back us up to verse 26 and this uh, another then God said. We find here God in deliberative conversation. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, the blessing that will then follow. But I want to note here God speaking, deliberating before man is created. And we ask, of course, the question, to whom is he speaking? Certainly not to the animals of verses 24 and 25. I don't know anybody that takes that position. Contextually, it could be, but it's not talking to the animals. Some propose there's a divine council of angels that have been created at this point, and he's speaking to them in that council. Others would insist that he's talking as a Trinitarian God. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In any event, God is communicating before man is created. He did not create man in order to have someone to talk to. He's already talking. I believe God is dialoguing in verse 26 because He is by nature a God who speaks. I don't believe against some false teachers that God created Jesus as a lesser God to have someone to talk to in eternity past. And clearly, no one could say from this text that he created man in order to talk to him. God is a God who speaks. Our eternal God, indeed, Father, Son, and Spirit has enjoyed Trinitarian dialogue from eternity past. The wonder of that reality comes to light in verse 28. Having created man as male and female in verse 27, we learn that God graciously condescends to enter into dialogue with us. To take that element of His character and His being and to communicate with His people that He has created. It's amazing grace. We see this divine speech so powerful that it materializes the universe. And now that speech is employed to pour out rich blessing and to bestow noble mission upon the two creatures made in God's image. And God saw that all of this was what? It was very good. Verse 31. Now, I'm going to jump in here because there's so much in chapter 1. I won't carry this through the other text until we get to the end here. But I think it's important that we stop here and just establish some statements. Sorry, here we are. On, on this slide, God speaks. Speech is integral to His nature and salvation plan. And I appeal to you by your reason, by I trust the presence and teaching of the Spirit of God, do you agree? Are these fair conclusions from Genesis chapter 1? I think they all are, and I present them to you that way. He speaks. It's who He is. Number two, God's words have the power to create life. Thirdly, God's words assert His sovereign authority over creation and give form and beauty to it. For God's Word is inseparable from God Himself. We cannot divide God from His Word. What the Word does, God does. There's a lot to that statement, but it's not the idea that God's great, His Word will figure out if that's okay or not. You can't do that. And then number five, God's Word is distinct from creation. Nature displays God's glory, but is not itself His Word. Now, in the context of a church that holds the interpretive principles that it does, 
these are clearly established, these are ideas clearly established in Genesis 1. And we would hold to them and I think consent to them naturally. Now some here may not today. You may differ with some of these ideas and I want to come back to them at the end. So just, uh, you'll see them again, just hold on to them in your thoughts at this point. But having traced the big picture creation account in chapter 1 that actually goes through chapter 2, verse 3. It's a really bad chapter division. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 3 is where it should go through. And then chapter 2, starting with verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So what what we have here is now in chapter 2, a second look at creation by narrowing in and supplying more detail. And we find here then, secondly, that God's Word authoritatively directs the path that our lives must take. Chapter 2, verse 15. We'll jump to that place. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So notice verse 15. God assigns to Adam a place to live and an occupation to pursue. Forgive me, but I really don't think that Adam was thinking, I don't know if I want to live there. I'm not, I need to think about this. I might have different gifts than what God's thinking, and I don't know if I want to take care of this garden. I mean, silly, right? With absolute authority, God says, here is my loving, gracious assignment for you. You will live here. You will do this. There's no question in Adam's mind that this is utter goodness on the part of God. Verse 16, God grants Adam universal reign to enjoy all the delectable fruit in paradise. You can have it all. It's there for your enjoyment, for your enrichment. But verse 17 is the one exception. Here God tells Adam what he must not do. Adam is incapable of disobeying God's word. I'm sorry, Adam is, it's subtly assumed, capable of disobeying God's word. But God explicitly warns Adam of the dire consequences if he chooses to do that, to disobey what God has said. Now we should note that the Bible does not belittle God by laboring apologetically to prove his existence. Where does Genesis 1-1 start? Not, let me prove that God exists. He's there. He's in the room. You don't doubt his existence. You just say, in the beginning, God. Likewise, the Bible wastes no time arguing the thesis that God has the right to tell Adam what he must do and what he must not do. God spoke the universe into existence. Case closed. He has absolute authority over the creation that he autonomously generated with his word. So catch this. God's absolute authority translates into Adam's total obligation to honor everything that God says. Is that fair? 
It's a hated statement in our world. But I think it's very clear as we understand the context of Genesis 2. God's absolute authority translates into Adam's total obligation to obey everything that God says. And when you consider the power of God's words to create and sustain the universe, then the most irrational thing one could imagine doing in this context is to defy God's word. I think that's clear to the critics of Scripture as well, which is why they say this is just fantasy land. The only thing you can do is write the Bible off and say this is all just myth and is ridiculous. Because if you face that point very clearly, it's quite troubling. God has absolute authority to tell me anything, and I am utterly obligated to do it. And it is the most irrational thing in the world to disregard the one who called the universe into being. So, when God says, do not do this, we are morally bound to not do it. I said it would be pretty silly for Adam to sit there and say, I don't know if I want to live here and I don't want to do this. It'd be very silly for him to take this command of God and say, let me think about that. When God says, this is good, this is my blessing, this is my way, walk in it. We must value, love, and honor that good way. If he questions us, we must answer. When God says, trust me, we must trust him. And on it goes. He has absolute authority we then have an entire, whole obligation to heed. Well, if there's any lingering notion here that God may not issue His authoritative word for Adam's good, well, look at what God does next. And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. What God does next is creates for Adam a woman, his wife, Eve. So as chapter 2 closes, what do we have? We don't have God making Adam's life miserable by putting this one tree off limits. What we have is a couple who inhabit a world untainted by pollution, disease, or natural disaster. In their world is no pain, no cold, no injury, no inclement weather, no natural disasters, no accidents, no war, no coronavirus. None. There they stand with flawless bodies experiencing a love for God and a love for one another such as we can only imagine today. Surrounded by delicious food and stunning natural beauty, the creator of the universe, walking and talking with them daily. They have paradise by the tail. And all they must do is heed 
the word of the Lord. What else would you want to do in such a setting? God's word gave life. God's word now gives authoritative direction. And they walk in its path. That's the deal. The principle is this from chapter 2. God's absolute sovereign authority translates into our total obligation and privilege to obey and honor everything God says. But here we begin to detect the inherent danger of God's word for creatures made with free will. God's word is always meant for our good, always meant to help us flourish and to draw near to God. But whenever God's word places a moral obligation or a moral restriction upon us, we hear that word for better or for worse. And that's the trouble, is that we can hear it for worse. There are places in Scripture that make pointedly clear that, they were, that the word of God can harden the heart. We know and rejoice that the word of God can soften the heart, can bring salvation to the dead soul. But it is also true that when God speaks, that word can harden hearts against Him. Sadly, this is what we learn experientially through Adam and Eve in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we learn that God's word can be twisted and disobeyed to our detriment. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, characteristically this way. And he said to the woman, clearly inhabited by Satan, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The sense of the Hebrew is, is this really true? Seriously? God said that to you? You're not allowed to eat this wonderful fruit in the garden? It casts doubt. It twists the reality of what God sees here. What God has said here. Satan feigns some level of surprise. Now, Satan, who inhabits and speaks through the serpent, knowingly lies, laying a trap here for Eve. Notice that he attacks, though, God's word by casting doubt on God's goodness. I'm surprised God would place such a demand upon you poor people. Why is this the case? Well, Eve hastens to correct what she thinks is the misunderstanding. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Having engaged Eve in conversation, Satan now directly contradicts God's word goes directly against it. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. In the Hebrew text, God says this as strongly as he can, dying, you will die. Satan takes that same phrase and says, not dying, you will die. The Hebrew way of saying this will absolutely happen. 
and Satan comes out, this will absolutely not happen. Now there's a direct attack upon what God has said. Having asserted that God's word is untrue and untrustworthy, Satan moves to the logical next step. God himself cannot be trusted. Unlike some liberal theologians, as we have time, we'll come back to them in a moment, but Satan does not divide between God and His Word. Remember that statement earlier. They will divide God and His Word. Satan knows better. If God's Word is bad, God is bad. God's Word and God's person are indivisible. His Word to you is bad, Satan insists, because God is bad. Let me explain this to you, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the real deal. God wants to withhold blessing from you. What you so want He does not want for you. He does not want you to be like Him. He does not want to be holy. He wants to be holy, but He's restricting you because of His selfishness, of His pride. He wants to harm you. Satan's temptation is for Adam and Eve to rely on human autonomy. To determine for themselves whether or not they find God's word reasonable. Whether or not they're going to choose to trust it. Is it good and true or is it harmful and false? I don't think that Adam and Eve are wrong to exercise reason. Their sin was to rely on their reason to determine whether or not they would obey God's word. And in an utterly irrational way, they proceed. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delightful to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, like God, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her in the shadows, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So together, they violate God's word to them and fall into a state of sin accompanied by deep shame, which they try to hide. They proceed in an utterly irrational way because they are dependent on their own reason. We will judge if God's word is reasonable. We will discern autonomously what we think about what he has said. It's a 10 year old boy. Mom's going to the grocery store to buy some last things for dinner that night, and she says, No food. We're having a big meal, a healthy meal that's coming here in just a few hours. Do not snack anything. Well, she's left out freshly made cookies cooling on a rack in the kitchen. And this 10-year-old boy says, I am really hungry. I could eat a cookie now and maybe skip one later, hoping I don't have to, but why would I not eat this cookie? I don't think mom's command makes any sense whatsoever, and my stomach's telling me I need a cookie. And he eats a cookie. 
And mom comes home and says, oh, I forgot those cookies were there. That was not probably good. And she talks to her son and said, did you eat one of the cookies? And what's he say? I'm going to think through this here. And I made sure I arranged the cookies so that she can't know. She can't possibly know. And so he looks at his mother in the eye and says, no, I did not eat a cookie. We work it through in our mind, I can get away with this. The word of mom in that situation did not hold authority for this young boy, and he speaks what is not true. You'd probably be better off to say, yes, I did, because your command was all messed up, and I don't agree with it. A conversation could happen then, perhaps, but he lies. And he knows that it's wrong for him to lie because God has said that it's wrong to lie. In some sense, Adam and Eve are in no different situation. This young boy's in no different situation than they are. They're thinking through it. Do I listen to what God has said? Do I trust his authoritative word or do I do my own thing? And suddenly they're overwhelmed with a new and debilitating self-awareness and they seek to cover their shame. We learn then, number four, very mercifully, that God's word confronts, convicts, and counsels sinners as well. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. That's one of the saddest phrases in scripture they hid themselves from the presence of the lord who walked with them who loved them they're saying i don't want to be near him in their shame but then verse 9 one of the most glorious verses in scripture the lord god called to the man and said where are you adam where are you God's question is not seeking knowledge that he lacks. His question graciously confronts Adam, drawing him out of hiding so that God can what? Talk to him. So he can converse with him, establish Adam's sin, and counsel him toward repentance. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and we we see the ugly excuses that come, but now they're talking. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I mean, that's the mom looking at the chocolate chip smears on her 10-year-old son's face and asking him, Did you eat a cookie? God knows what he's done, but he's drawing him out graciously. He's conversing with him to discipline, to convict, to counsel ultimately. And the man said, yeah, it's the woman's fault. The woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, yeah, it's the serpent's fault. He deceived me and I ate. So we won't take the time, but the Lord brings a curse upon the serpent, the woman, the man that are fitting to their role and to their responsibilities and to their position but as the discipline comes verse 20 is a glorious phrase the man called his wife's name Eve 
because she was the mother of all living. Linking to chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, that is, Satan's people and God's people. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A representative of the people of God will bruise the head of a representative of the people of Satan. A mutual death blow will come. And Adam names his wife the mother of the living. I think it is an act of faith responding to the promise of God to crush this serpent who brought division between God and man. So in this archetypal temptation, we learn the danger of trusting anonymous reason. I've said anonymous, autonomous reason. Autonomous reason, our own reason over God's word. We're tempted to think that my reason, my intuition, my experience can be trusted to weed out what is right and what is wrong for me. And really, we're all in one or the other. I trust God at his word and I align my life to it. Or I appeal to my own thoughts and experiences, what I think is right, and I go with that. And I see if it fits what God says or not, I don't really care because ultimately I'm in charge of me. It's one or the other. But when we rely on ourselves over trusting God's word, we always turn down a dark path. Let us also take to heart the truth that Satan loves to attack the authenticity, the wisdom, and the goodness of God's Word. This is his scheme. It's a scheme in the garden. It's a scheme today among us. He labors to undermine God's Word, to get us to doubt its goodness and its trustworthiness. This is what he does. Satan wins every time we choose to wallow in bitterness against what God has counseled us to do. When we wallow in self-pity rather than to love and rejoice in trials. We listen to Satan when we turn to illicit sex or pornography, for instance, for pleasure. We discount God's Word when we choose to lie to protect our interests or to steal what is not ours, or to gossip, or to look good, so that we look good in the eyes of others. In such situations, we rely upon our own reason, our way of doing things, what we believe will work out best, and we set God's word aside. Our only hope as lawbreakers is Genesis 3.15. That one will come to rescue us from this darkness. And that one, of course, is the Word incarnate. The Word that has come, the Savior that has come and crushed Satan's head on the cross, bruising his heel as he stomped on the head of Satan. That redemption was won by Messiah and only those who place their trust and their hope in what Christ has done can be delivered from the sin and the natural orientation we have to break God's law. For those here who are, you're without Christ, you don't live your life under the authority of God's word because you've not met his incarnate word, his living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Know that his word to you is that Jesus Christ has died in the place of sinners of lawbreakers, of people who want to break God's law, who find joy in doing what God has said not to do, and who will not under any occasion do what God has said. 
to do. Such people, Christ stands in the place and dies the death that they deserve. Remember what he said to Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of it, you will die. The seed of death is sown. But Christ, the one who crushes Satan's head, comes and dies that death in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of that sin and rises from the dead to give new life, speaking to the dead and cold heart to revive it and to give it new life in His name. For those of us who have trusted that message, God's Word confronts, convicts, counsels us to repentance all the time. This is what unbelievers don't understand when we speak against certain sin in our culture. They think, well, you just don't like certain sinners or you don't like certain sins or you hate people. And we say, no, we're right there too. We have our own desires that go against the word of God. What we love is the Lord and the redemption that Christ has won for those who break his law in a thousand ways like us. So, for just a moment or two, let's come back and consider these ideas that we've seen through these three chapters. God speaks. Speech is integral to His nature and salvation plan. God's words have the power to create life. And we can fill in so much more that we're just looking here at physical life. But we see this also in spiritual life in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ and His saving grace. But more on that to come perhaps. God's words assert His sovereign authority over creation and give form and beauty to it. God's word is inseparable from God Himself. We cannot divide God from His word. What the word does, God does. Number five, God's word is distinct from creation. Nature displays God's glory, but is not itself his word. Number six, God's word is clear, objective, and authoritative such that it becomes our total obligation and privilege to obey and honor everything that God says. Number seven, God's word is under the constant assault of Satan's lies and God's people continually subject to Satan's deceptions which they must learn to resist. And God's word, finally, is our rescue from sin. These eight points, I hope, are clear from the text of Scripture. We're taking Scripture at face value and saying, this is what it's teaching us. That you might say, this is pretty clear to us as a church. These are, these are not difficult ideas for us. They make clear sense. Yes, they flow from Genesis 1 through 3. I want you to look at these eight. Those four statements and these four statements together, there are surrounding us in this community in this state, in this nation, in Western civilization, there are surrounding us churches that hold to a theology that directly denies each one of these statements. Because of their understanding of what Scripture is, they have a way of working around each of these assertions. Now, people 
in those churches many times have no idea what's going on. Because they've not done this deep philosophical study coming out of the Enlightenment in the 16 and 1700s. I mean, who's reading dead philosophers these days in the pews of churches? A few. Not a whole lot. And then that tapping into the German philosophers of a stretch of time, learning these ideas in seminaries. Pastors come into churches with a Christian name and the word church attached to it, and they directly argue against every one of these eight points. And I say this to say what we're considering here today is of utter significance to us. We may not recognize it because we take so much for granted and we have an understanding with one another about the Word of God. But we need to know in the undermining of the authority of Scripture, there are those at work who are more dangerous in the Christian church than outside of it. That is, by Christian church, I use the word in the broadest sense of the word, those who would claim to be Christian, the assault is so severe against the authority of God's word because they know what they're doing. They know that these are the conclusions from Genesis 1 through 3, and so they work through every one of these assertions to deny it. And you have people attending Christian churches that have no idea that's what their pastors think, or are learning these ideas and have become nothing more than social clubs. Making inroads into the community to better it and improve it, and we thank God for those efforts, but people who do not know the living word. It's a serious battle. And it's a battle we recognize is out there in the ecclesiastical realm, but we also realize is a battle within our own hearts. Because that little boy who lied about stealing the cookie, disobeying his mom and then lying about it, that's you. And that's me. We know how given we, we are to test and to question the authority of God's Word. May God help root us and found us in that life-giving word. I hope that this series will deepen those foundations and that bedrock of truth in God's holy word in the face of his eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask that he will do that. Father, as you give us life, and we can't count on a moment of time or a day, but we trust you as you give us life that we will grow that we will mature, that we will deepen in our understanding of your authority, and that we will turn from the natural tendency to judge your word, to pick and choose what we're going to hear, and to work around the implications of what your word means. For those who know not Christ, we pray for their salvation. For those in Christ, we rejoice that you have spoken your word of salvation into our lives and you have enabled us to respond in Christ. May we respond faithfully today and in the days ahead. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.